How do we have a Christ-centered Christmas? We hear that phrase, I think, a lot over the holidays, and, and rightly so. I think we should. And you know, uh, in answer to this question, I think the answer to having a Christ-centered Christmas is that we need to be having a Christ-centered every day. And then that will naturally extend to special times of the year like Christmas. We just celebrated Thanksgiving. And, you know, if every day of your life you're living ungratefully, you're living in non-thankfulness to the Lord, what's going to make Thanksgiving be any different besides for maybe mentioning a few things you're thankful for? But what we're talking about here is heart thankfulness or a Christ-centered heart during the Christmas season. Isn't it easier said than done to live every day with a Christ-centered perspective? Why is it easier said than done? Because we live in a broken world as broken people. I want to share with you three stories as we introduce this passage in how a Christ-centered perspective it's not just some theological term as if theology and practical life are somehow dissected or two different things. I want us to look at three different stories to get us thinking how can we be living a Christ-centered life during this season, look at a Christ-centered Christmas and the everyday brokenness of our lives and of our circumstances in our world. Let me read you these. Sally is an older woman in her early 80s. She married young in her early 20s. She and her husband Derek just celebrated their 60th wedding anniversary last year. In that same year, the doctor found an unexpected area of cancer that was very aggressive. Within that year, her husband, despite chemotherapy treatment, passed away as his cancer took an unexpected turn for the worse. Now, for the first time in 60 years, Sally finds herself without her husband. As the holiday season approaches, her family is very concerned for her. Will this Christmas make or break Sally? How will she handle this time of year where traditions loom large and memories of past Christmases are ever present? So I ask you, is there hope for Sally in her time of need? Though she's emotionally and physically weary and battered, can she experience peace? In the midst of such grief and difficulty, is it even possible for her to have a Christ-centered Christmas? Let's take a different scenario. Bill is an enthusiastic and ever-optimistic businessman. To the amazement of his peers, he quickly rose among the ranks of the company he works for 
and now finds himself as a top executive. However, as his salary increases, so do he and his family's taste for the extravagant. It's now Christmas time, and Bill wants to make this Christmas extra bountiful for his family, especially since he has neglected them so often through this past year due to his long work hours and travel commitments. However, bills are also piling up from past extravagances and luxuries that he and his family have enjoyed. And Bill is a Christian and also deals with a gentle yet strong conviction and uneasiness from the Holy Spirit that his, wife, his life is not ordered correctly. So we have to ask ourselves, with so many tensions tugging at Bill's heart, is there hope for him in his time of need? Can he too experience the joy and peace that comes from a spirit-driven transformation in his life? Can he and his family enjoy a Christ-centered Christmas? A third scenario, Gail has always suffered from depression. Sometimes there are clear internal or external triggers that mark her depression. But at other times, these episodes come on her without warning. She's seen doctors and counselors and has even taken some medication which has helped some but she has never quite seen victory in this area of her life. Her husband and children feel weighed down knowing that Gail is going through these struggles and they feel helpless to be of any lasting help to her. The holidays are now approaching and Gail feels the, the pull to again withdraw within herself as her world is seeming dark. Is there any hope for Gail? Can she too live a Christ-centered life and experience a Christ-centered Christmas? These are three just made-up stories that people find themselves in everywhere. Many even in this room. But I think these very real situations, though made up stories with made up names, are characteristic of the difficulties of living in a broken world as broken people. I think we can add another story, maybe story number four. We're not going to make up story number four out loud, but I want you to think of your own story your own life? Is there hope for you today? Is there hope for you this Christmas? Can you experience a Christ-centered life? Can you experience a Christ-centered Christmas? You see, when we come to Scripture, we all come to Scripture, we don't come in a vacuum. And, and to the, to the blessing of all, of all of us as Christians, the scriptures were not written in a vacuum. There were real-life situations going on, real-life difficulties. 
And we all come to Scripture with our own experiences, our own heartaches, our own pressures. And no matter how good your life may seem, you may say, Pastor Adam, praise God, I'm not going through any of that. But I would venture to say, none of us are living in perfection yet. We all need, and this is key, we all need Christ to speak into our stories. In fact, I think that's one of the greatest disconnections that we experience in our Christian life. That we know theological truth of what Jesus has done, and we know the theological truth of of the, the good things that are in store for all eternity. Yet the one thing we fail to do as Christians is take all of that spiritual truth and let it speak into our story. And that is what the Scriptures desire to do for us. The Scriptures are our hope. You see, we need an outside voice to rise above the noise and all of the chaos of life. We need the Scriptures that can provide a true north focus for us in what oftentimes circumstantially seems like directionless, just stuff, right? So this morning, I think in this passage, we have just this kind of help, a true north focus for us. The book of Colossians is one of my favorite favorite books, and... We're just focusing on this single passage passage from Colossians. And what we are going to see in this passage is the reason why we can have a Christ-centered every day. Why we can have a Christ-centered Christmas. It's because of this truth that Christ is preeminent. Christ is is above all things. He is greater than all things. Doesn't matter the chaos that is surrounding you, the chaos that is flooding your heart and mind, Christ is preeminent. And you can leave this morning, and you can can walk away with this theological truth, but theology is never complete until it reaches the heart. How is Christ preeminent in your story? And we are going to see the reality of Christ's preeminence in three all-encompassing realms. And because Christ is preeminent in these three realms, we can come to Him no matter what is going on or what we are struggling with, knowing that He is preeminent in those things as well. And he is preeminent functionally in our lives if we let him. So let's pray. And we're going to see, we're going to look at the first realm. And then we're going to stop as we look at the second realm this morning. And then we'll continue in two weeks. Let's pray. Lord, I gave a few examples of real life situations, 
things that people encounter. And Lord, I think all of us in our minds have certain details, certain struggles, certain characteristics in life that encompass their story as they look at their own lives. And Father, I pray that the truth of your word would ring loud. Lord, above the chaos of worries and struggles and circumstances and busyness and all of those things, Lord, would your truth invade the stories of our lives. Lord, so many times in the stories of our lives, we build little little walls around us so nobody can get past those walls to truly know our story. God, I pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would break through those walls and that you would show yourself as you truly are to each one of us. Lord, lead us, enlighten us as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I want us to look at verses 15 to 17 of chapter 1 of Colossians. The text says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. The first realm that we see that Christ is preeminent, that Christ is exalted and above is the realm of Christ and creation. Christ and creation. Jesus is above the created order. In verse 15, it says, He. And if we just stop right there and we say, Who is the He? Well, we know that the He is Jesus. But what does verse 13 and 14 introduce to us about this He? This Jesus. Why is this important? Verse 13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So this is a very big He. He is our hope. He is, as we will see later in this text, a personal God. He is the one who is in control of our lives. But lest we get deceived in thinking, as we so often think in a self-centered way, that we live in in a universe of one, this God is so much greater than just a God of one. He is a God of everything. He is the creator of all things. So let's go as the scriptures provide further detail into this he of verse 15. How is he described? We've already seen his work of redemption in verses 13 and 14. He's described as the image of the invisible God. So Jesus is the very image 
of God. In Hebrews, if, you're, if you have your finger in Hebrews chapter 1, we read something very similar. I'm just going to read the first four verses if you want to follow along. The book of Hebrews opens up like this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But, there's something greater coming. What does verse 2 say? In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also, as we will see in Colossians as well, He created the world. And here's the perfect image of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power after making purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You see, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. To see Jesus is to see God. And to see the greatness of God is to see, as verse 3 and 4 tell us, is to see His greatest act, which is redemption. As we look to Jesus as above the created order, He is the very image of God. You think back in Genesis chapter 1, that God made Adam, God made Eve. In the, the image of God, they were representations of God on earth. They had a special relationship with God. They were given specific duties. And as we know, they were imperfect representations. They chose to go their own way. But man, our hope is that Jesus is the perfectly obedient image bearer unlike Adam. And as we will see, he assures us of a new creation order because he has now come as the perfect image of God. But not only does the text talk about the he, Jesus, being the the image of the invisible God, what was unknown about God, the Father, was revealed through God the Son. We're going to talk about he became flesh He dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Isn't that the the hope of Christmas? The text also tells us, though, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. When the text says firstborn of all creation, it is not talking about contrary to what groups like Jehovah Witnesses believe. It's not saying that Jesus was the first created thing. Time does have, there is a sense of time in this word firstborn. The Bible uses the word firstborn talking about, for instance, you know, so-and-so 
begot so-and-so, so-and-so's firstborn son. But what is the, the, the prominent meaning of this term firstborn is that which is higher in significance or rank. You know, you think of, of the military where you have different ranks. Jesus is higher in rank, in authority, in power, in preeminence than anything else in all of creation. Boy, aren't you glad of that. Especially because we know this world is broken. Someone once said, it is not the proper question really isn't to say when we think about the implications of living in a sin-filled, broken world, the question isn't as much, boy, I'm living in life and why did this happen to me? The question is, boy, why did all of these other things not happen to me? It's but by the grace of God. And we have here Jesus ranks higher than anything in creation. In fact, Psalm 89.27, And I will make Him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Talking about David, but ultimately the promised Messiah. Firstborn in rank. In Colossians 1 and verse 18, as we will get to this, he is the firstborn from the dead. In this sense, not only is he the first one to conquer death, but he's the greatest one to conquer death. He is our leader. Remember John 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Before anything else was created, Jesus, the Word, was. So you know what this tells us? There is nothing outside of our Creator's control. All of the mess that we see in the, the world around us, all of the mess that we see within the four walls of our home, all of the mess that we see within our own hearts, nothing is outside of our Creator's control. Wouldn't that be a comfort to Bill, to Sally, to Gail? Isn't it to you? You see, Jesus was not intimidated to enter the created world, which was now broken. Why? Because he is preeminent and he is the creator of everything that he entered into. And Jesus is not intimidated to enter into the chaos of your life. Many times, I can hear somebody's situation or, um, and I can be, whoa, that's really intimidating because I have no clue. I don't know what to say other than listen and pray. But Jesus is never intimidated. There is no situation beyond his grasp. In fact, as Dane Ortland has said in his book, Gentle and Lowly, that is where Jesus finds the most delight and the satisfaction to meet us in our most desperate point 
and to cause us to cling to him. That brings Jesus the most delight, not to pretend like we have our acts together. So we see, first of all, Jesus is above the created order, and we can find hope in that. Why? He's the image of God, and he's the firstborn. He's higher in rank than anything in creation, but it goes even further than that. Why is Christ preeminent in the creation realm? Because as I just mentioned, and as verse 16 is going to go into greater detail, Jesus is not simply above the created order. He himself is the creator. Look at verse 16. For by him all things were created. That word by, it can also be translated in him all things were created. Just had something weird go on with my mic. Um, In him. In other words, he is the realm into which everything was created. It's a similar concept to being in Christ. If we are new creations, we are in Christ. Everything that was created was created in the sphere of Jesus' oversight. Nothing was beyond him. He is the realm in which creation was made, but the text says, for by him, how many things were created? What does the text say? All things. He is the all things creator. This passage is full of the phrase all things. It shows us Jesus' completeness, his complete sovereignty and his complete ability To handle everything. For us to give him everything. For us to have full confidence in him. He's the all things creator. And then he's also the sovereign creator. It says in verse 16. All things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. The things we know about, the things we don't know about, the things we see, the things we don't see. All things. He encompasses all things. He has oversight over all things. And then it gets really interesting. The third description of what these all things are, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. This is talking about both the physical and the spiritual realm. Listen, it doesn't matter what ruler rules in whatever country, whether it's the United States of America or whether it's North Korea or any other nations. Christ is over that. What's really of interest is that these terms are used specifically even of spiritual, whether that be angelic or demonic authority. In fact, three of these four terms are used in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21, that Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. 
I like what David Powlison um, once said because it really makes us put things into perspective. We often think of this battle between God and the devil, that somehow there's this battle and it's like they're evenly matched. You know what David Powlison said? Did you know that the devil is God's devil? Think about that. The devil is God's devil. The devil, God is using the devil, even the devil, to accomplish God's overall purposes that he has in individuals and in this world. Kind of puts things into perspective. When we look at these terms, the term thrones, it's most often used of the very throne of God. In Revelation, it can be used of the throne of the beast a few times. But, but even that term shows us that God is the one on the throne, not anyone else. Whether it be Satan himself or an earthly ruler. Dominions, the, the, the realm of authority or ruling power. It could be angelic or demonic or even human. Or rulers. That word rulers in some contexts can be translated the beginning, and it is translated that way in verse 18, referring to Jesus, who is the beginning. All rule stems from him. He's above it all. And no matter what authority, no matter what sphere of rule one has, we know that Jesus is even above that. Why? Because the very same word is used in verse 13 of chapter 1. He has delivered us from the domain. That's the same word, authority. The domain of darkness. And he's transferred us to his own kingdom. How I'm reminded in Romans 8, verses 38 to 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So going back to our stories, it doesn't matter how deep that Gail's depression gets. Jesus is Lord even of the darkness. It doesn't matter how lonely that an individual can get, even married 60 plus years. Why? Because Jesus is a comforter to the comfortless. It doesn't matter how off our, our priorities get and how far we, we tend to falter and tend to go. Why? Because Jesus is standing with open arms to receive us to himself. Why is Jesus over the realm of creation? Because he's above this created order. Because he is the creator. And verse 17 gives us a third facet of Jesus in creation. He is actually the sustainer of creation. Have you ever been in a building or maybe your own home? You know, it was built years ago. At once was immaculate, but time goes by, and, 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 you know, there's some need of some upkeep. Things have been neglected. 
That's not the way it is with Jesus. Jesus is the sustainer. He's the sustainer of everything. Verse 17 says he's, tells us he's the originator of all that is. And he is before all things. Do you see how, how uh, Paul is presenting Jesus that, man, as, as even Nate mentioned, past, present, future, there's, there's Jesus. There is God the Son. And it delights God the Father to emphasize God the Son because in doing that, whether it's in creation or whether it is in this universe or whether it's in our lives, by emphasizing God the Son, God the Father is glorified. Verse 17 says that He's before all things. Again, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was already in existence in the beginning of created time. In fact, that word, He, there, it's emphatic. He Himself and no one else. As the firstborn Creator, He is above all that is created. And the text also says, In Him all things hold together. Jesus himself, get this, is the glue that holds, I want to take it at three different levels. He's the glue that holds our universe, whole universe. He's the glue that holds our world. And he's the glue that holds ourselves together. Again, talking, going back to Hebrews 1 and verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And what does it say? He upholds the universe by the word of his power. The same word that spoke creation into existence and accidentally skipped uh, the end of verse 16. All things were created through him. Jesus was the agent of creation. And for him, Jesus is the goal of creation. So since all things are moving towards the, the work of Jesus and, and, and making him preeminent, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow on heaven and on earth and proclaim he is Lord. He is sustaining everything for that day. Now, I'm not a scientist. There's others that um, could speak more into this. Matt and, and Aaron and all those guys. So I'm just going to read something. And I want to put up a picture for you of an atom. Not myself, but an atom with a T. And all you see the proton, the neutron, you see the electron orbit. Physicists tell us that among the atoms whirling protons and electrons, there is vast space, not unlike our solar system. Though some have theories as to why the atoms hold together, none know for sure. Christ is not contained in matter, but he holds it together by his word. It is Jesus who is holding the atoms together. It is Jesus who is sustaining the universe. 
But guess what? This world is broken, isn't it? Praise God, Jesus is preeminent over creation. But this world is broken. This world is under judgment. It is under destruction. And that's where I want to introduce to us sphere or realm number two where Christ is preeminent. And we're going to finish this up in two weeks. We can put our hope in Jesus. We can put our confidence in Jesus. Sally, Bill, Gail can turn to Jesus in their greatest needs and in their greatest shames. Knowing that if Christ is preeminent over creation, surely he's preeminent and cares about me. But also the second realm is that we look at Christ's preeminence in his relationship with himself and the church. You may say, well, Pastor Adam, you know, I've looked at this passage before and I don't, I've never quite understood the connection of Jesus, of Paul talking about Jesus as the head of creation and why does he then seemingly randomly start talking about the church? What's the tie-in between these two ideas? And there's a very specific tie-in. It's a purposeful tie-in. You see, just as Jesus is the image of the invisible God broken into a broken, sinful creation, so now, verse 18, He is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is our head. The head of the church, the the corporate church, both the universal church and the local church. Jesus is our head. So as the perfect image of God, verse 15, Christ is also our head, our leader, verse 18. As the image of God over the old creation... Through his work of redemption, remember verses 13 and 14. And remember Hebrews 1, chapter 1, verse 4, talks about Jesus as the radiance, he's the image of God, and it talks about he completed the work of redemption and he's seated at the right hand of God. You know what Jesus has done through that? He has brought in the beginnings of a new creation. So rather than simply being the image of God in this broken creation, when it comes to the working of God's new creation that will find ultimate fulfillment when Jesus returns, the beginning work of that new creation is us. Remember what 1 Corinthians says, or 2 Corinthians? If anyone is in Christ, same terminology as all things were created in him, If anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. In the original languages, it's simply, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. You see, in the old creation, what we see that creation was, Jesus was the agent, the instrument of creation. When it says God God said, God spoke, he spoke through his son. And, and, and God first created a place, and then he put his people in it. 
In the new creation, the order is reversed. He first creates his people, and then he is going to put his people in the new place. You see that difference, and yet that tie-in? We are gathered together as a new creation assembly. Our hope is not in what happened to us Monday through Saturday. Our hope is not the circumstances that we're in. Our hope is that what verse 18 says, Jesus is our head. Because of what he purchased, he is bringing something new. Man, I love getting new stuff at Christmas. Even if it's a new pair of taco socks like I got one year. <laughs> it's new, right? The, the, the old socks that are getting holes and are getting worn out can be tossed away. Here's the greatest Christmas present. Jesus has brought the new. And in God's grace, we are tasting the new right now. And the new will ultimately be fulfilled when he comes again. He is the head of the body, the church. Not only is Jesus our head, but again, in reminiscent of the old creation, verse 17, he is before all things, anything that was created. Look what verse 18 says. He is the beginning. See how, how Paul is contrasting here? Jesus preeminent over the old creation. And man, Jesus preeminent over the new creation. That is why it is all about Jesus from start to finish. He is the beginning. This is new creation language. Remember Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created. Here we have even more specific than the old creation, Jesus himself is the beginning. It's not simply in the beginning, but he is the beginning. Christ has ushered in a new beginning. Jesus is our beginning. There's a new creation, but we also see the text says he is, there's that word again, the firstborn from the dead. Here, it's both order. He's the first one to have conquered death. He's the pioneer of our faith. And also rank. He is the highest that has conquered death. He is our preeminent leader. You see, this answers the question, how is God the beginning of the new creation? Because he brought it when he rose again from the dead. And what is now his rightful place? He's the firstborn from the dead. Why? In order that in everything he might be preeminent. The language there, in verses 15 to 17, it's just, this is what Jesus did. All things were created in him. He was the agent of creation. The goal of creation is Jesus. All of these things are facts. The, the, the language is a little bit different in this verse, isn't it? That in everything, he might be preeminent. You know what this is saying? That yes, the world was lost. The world was broken. We were destined for an eternity without him. 
But what did he do? And we're going to talk about this more in part two. He conquered death. He took our shame. He lived the perfect life that we could never live. So that preeminence over a new creation would be his. We see here in verse 18 the language of working, accomplishing something. In in the first half, it's just, of course, Jesus is over everything because he existed before creation. He He was never created. But now Christ accomplishes something to win us back. So again, what is the hope for Sally, for Bill, for Gail, for your story? It's Jesus. And we say, how do we flesh that out in life? That is why God has given us his word. God has given us each other. God has given us helps that we navigate through situations that are often messy. But the one thing that is never in question is, is Jesus there and is Jesus enough? 